0: Forensic Psychology is a podcast that provides an illuminating window into the workings of the criminal mind. Now, here's your host, Dr. Carlos.
1: Welcome back, everybody. Well, today we have a great guest, Dr. Eric Messamore. He's an MD, PhD, a psychiatric psychiatric physician, pharmacologist, university professor, and a solution-focused scholar. Today, we're going to be talking about schizophrenia. We're going to be talking about psychosis and a whole lot more. He's a recognized authority in the field of psychiatric medicine. He believes in moving useful mental health information out of library textbooks or academic journals and into the hands of the people who need it. So if you're ever thinking about getting into the field, if you're in school for the field, already in the field, this is a podcast for you. You can learn more about him at learnaboutpsychosis.com. It's learnaboutpsychosis.com. But before we get started, you know what to do. Share, subscribe, hit that like button. You know, we we'll like it. Let's not waste any more time. Welcome to the show, Dr. Messonore. Welcome, sir.
0: Uh, thank you for having me. Nice to be here.
1: Thank you for doing this. This is a, we just talked about before the show. It's a very complicated topic that somehow <laughs> the, the media tends to make it simple and they have a lot of distorted beliefs about it. So I'm really glad you're here so we can kind of try to straighten out some of this stuff. I think movies also make it uh, jumble up a lot of the information too. So let's do this. I guess my very first question, is tell us a little bit about psychosis and what you want to get the message out for people.
0: Yeah, g- great. So psychosis is absolutely Butchered in movies, journalism, popular culture. In fact, it's, I, I call it one of the last safe bastions for bias because, I, you know, I can read it. Nobody would, let's see, if any political figure or celebrity were to use certain kinds of racial words, they would be pummeled in public media for being biased and cruel and mean, yet I routinely read in the newspaper, you know, cabinet officials calling something psychotic uh, people can use in, in sitcom, in um, television series or movies. If you are a script writer, you want to make something very spooky or suspicious or scary. You put a person with psychosis in that, and then the public sees that's spooky, unpredictable. Um, It's just a mess, and consequently, nobody really knows exactly what psychosis is. Part of that as well is because psychosis was coined in about 1843, it appeared in medical journals as a word to describe essentially problems that lead to higher-level brain function processes, Uh, but it was really never operationally defined like we define things these days. So it had a pretty vague meeting in 1843. Also 1843, medical standards were not as they are now. In fact, I, I, I don't joke about this, but 1843 was a couple of years before doctors first started to publish recommendations that you should wash your hands before you examine women who have given birth. So it was really a different era. And psychosis was the term was born in that era. Um, and since then, it's had lots of different escaped into public jargon and had a lot of different disparaging meanings. The It would be really nice if we could, if my field could simply redefine this in a way that's sensible and accurate. And I would propose that the easiest way to understand psychosis is basically a misperception syndrome. The brain, gen, parts of the brain that generate perceptions generate clusters of misperceptions. And then the part of the brain that has to make sense of perceptions tries to make sense of them. You put those two things together and you get the essence of psychosis, clusters of misperceptions, which if they occur in areas of the brain that lead to sound, sight, touch, we call them hallucinations. And if you generate misperceptions of importance or relevance of signi- or significance, then the part of your brain that has to make sense of why is it that, for example, on my desk, the telephone or outside the window of the tree seem like they're just really substantially important. Are they connected in some way? They must be, says my thinking brain. And so I can come up with an idea, or thinking brain comes up with an idea. Oh spiritual connection, maybe I have generated some new insight. So psychosis revolves around misperceptions of sensation, we call those hallucinations, uh, and around misperceptions of relevance. There's not a name for that, it's called aberrant salience in psychology, but that's, not many people know about it. But the thing, the phrase, or the term delusion, which is an unusual belief that seems impervious to other information, that process of delusion formation basically is the thinking brain trying to make sense of sensations of importance that part of the thinking brain doesn't really see as connected. So we have a, I say we have a fund, we have a need as fundamental as oxygen or water for, um, to make sense of things. And so when the brain generates these clutches of misperceptions, we are, we just have to, or the part of the brain that does this is driven to come up with explanations that work.
1: It's great to get. Uh, it's where the litany of questions now are coming at you. <laughs> After that, um, you know, I'm trying to think right in the top of my head. My mom actually had psychotic episodes years and years ago before she passed. Um, they gave her resperidol, if I remember correctly, that's what they, they gave her. It was mm-hmm. interesting. I'll ask you. I'll ask you a little later on because it's interesting to me how they tend to have similar psychotic episodes, some of the individuals, and, and, and I'll, I'll look at that, I'll, I'll ask you later, like I said, but I want to get that out there. Um, let me go back to the neuroscience for a second. We'll start off with that angle for a minute. Uh, what parts of the brain are, or brain structures are being is it, are associated with psychosis? or Are there particular ones more so than others? I think it was like the mesolimbic system or something of that nature.
0: Yeah, the, lots of parts of the brain appear uh, uh, to be functioning unusually in psychosis. But before I go further, I just want to point out another important thing about psychosis is that it is relatively easy to recognize, just like fever, but also like fever, it has lots and lots of different causes. So psychosis is also best thought of as thought of accurate logical symptom akin to fever. And once you have it, then the next question is, What is the underlying cause? So I point that out because the, I mean, in the, the, the fancy word is heterogeneous. It has a lot of different causes. It's not the same thing. If a hundred different people have a similar symptom, they may have five different illnesses or 20 different illnesses. They probably all don't have exactly the same illness. So when it comes to answering the question of what parts of the brain are affected kind of depends upon that person's pathway to psychosis, but broadly speaking, we do have a whole family of medicines that get called antipsychotic medications. What they have in common across the board is that they block the one of the receptors or a handful of receptors for dopamine. So because we knew about this from 1950s, we have imagined or hypothesized that making too much dopamine or having too strong of a dopamine system is somehow relevant That is one pillar of the oldest, most famous hypothesis called dopamine hypothesis of psychosis. The other major pillar for that hypothesis came also from drugs, but that was from drugs that have psychosis as a kind of common side effect. Amphetamine or the amphetamine derivatives are one set of drugs, which if taken at high enough doses, most people will eventually develop hallucinations or paranoia, and also drugs that are used in the treatment of Parkinson's disease, which is a disease in which the brain loses dopamine. Those Parkinson's disease drugs are pro-dopamine drugs. They augment the signal for dopamine, and they also have as a not uncommon side effect psychosis. So when it comes to the question of what causes psychosis, we can look at drugs that ameliorate psychosis or drugs that can provoke psychosis, and they have very much in common the dopamine system, and dopamine in the brain. There are several circuits that, m- several areas of the brain that make dopamine, and several areas of the brain that receive dopamine. And this um, system from the midbrain that goes to the to the limbic system and the frontal cortex, called mesolimbic or mesocortical system, that does seem to be quite often overactive in people with psychosis. Actually, these days we have, we have, with positron emission tomography, an ability to put in radio-labeled precursors. And by, radioact- by radio-labeled, I mean they generate a certain kind of radioactivity called positron. And then you put a person into a detector and that's the essence of positron emission tomography. So you can get positron emitting dopamine precursors and give them to living, breathing human beings with or without schizophrenia or psychosis, and then put them into the PET scanner and you can literally measure the production of dopamine in various brain regions. And a large portion of people with schizophrenia, which is a disease characterized by persistent psychosis, a large portion of those individuals actually make more dopamine than the average person. turns out as well that the people who make a lot of dopamine or make above average amounts of dopamine, tend to be the ones that respond very well to dopamine-blocking drugs. and But going back to schizophrenia or psychosis is a heterogeneous, in other words, many causes, phenomenon. Those PET studies have also shown that there's a subset of people with schizophrenia that actually make dopamine quite normally, equivalent to somebody without schizophrenia. And those individuals, the normal dopamine psychosis, uh, the people with what I call normal dopamine psychosis, they turn out, Generally, not to have therapeutic response to traditional dopamine blocking antipsychotic drugs.
1: Fascinating. So it sounds like dopamine. What's that old saying? Is it necessary and sufficient, or it's not necessary and sufficient? It sounds like. Uh,
0: I think you could say that have making that overactive or hyperactive dopamine systems are sufficient to cause psychosis, but not all psychosis is caused by dopamine.
1: Wow, that's fascinating. Hey, that's not usually what you get <laughs> in academia. Not usually well, what you
0: get. <laughs> yeah, but and that's and that's that's kind of maybe how how you how you found me, because I, I work as a psychiatrist. OK, funny thing happens when you when people when you when you become a psychiatrist and your colleagues find out that you have a Ph.D. in pharmacology, as I do, then. You start getting immediately. Hey, I've got this guy, and I've been working with him for five years, and I can't really seem to make any progress. Could you see him? Do you have any ideas? So I, I just sort of defaulted in, or it was my path that I didn't really think about when I, when I became a doctor. I didn't, I didn't anticipate this was going to be like my, my career. But I spent a long time getting and thinking about the people that didn't get better with the first and second line treatments. And so, I mean, from the earliest points of my clinical career, I was faced with the fact that not only psychosis or schizophrenia, but depression, anxiety, lots of these psychiatric diagnoses are not unitary single cause phenomena. Uh, If, for example, if all depression were just a serotonin problem, I would never see any people that never get better from antidepressants, but about half of people with depression don't get better from serotonin augmentation. So that's nature's way of telling you, through the action of drugs, that not all depression has that much to do with deficient serotonin signaling. And similarly, in the area of psychosis or schizophrenia, the fact that approximately 30% of individuals with schizophrenia don't derive substantial therapeutic benefit from antipsychotic, in other words, dopamine blocking drugs, is nature's way of telling us through the action of drugs that not all schizophrenia is a dopamine disease. And if you look to research, if you look to publish research that looks at causes or these PET scanning or other kinds of functional imaging studies that I mentioned, then in my way of thinking, I call, I call, I, I, I would propose that what we call schizophrenia could more easily and more accurately be renamed dopamine psychosis, glutamate psychosis, inflammatory psychosis, what I'll call medical psychosis, in other words, things like brain tumors or structural lesions. Um, and probably a whole host of of, um, min- of numerically minor causes. So nobody really knows how many causes of schizophrenia there are. I would, well, actually take this back. Well, nobody knows. To be clear, nobody knows. But there was a study that was done, I can't remember who did it, but it was published within the, within the last five years. And they took a very large data set from a large research study, and in this data set, they had a number of genetic markers and a large number of questionnaire questions. And so, I love this paper because it's kind of like if we were to just, if we were to realize as the medical profession today that there is this phenomenon that got the, that we that we call psychosis, we would approach it today with big data and genes. Uh, or genetic analysis, and so this paper kind of did that. So they just they they did um, very fancy statistics to try to look for naturally occurring categories within genetic clusters or symptom clusters, and there were something like over a dozen distinct symptom clusters that could be parsed out of that data on people with schizophrenia and something like 60 or 80 genetic clusters. So you could, if, 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 if one approach it with fresh eyes today, you could say that what we call schizophrenia might be a dozen or more different symptom clusters, which might or might not map to a dozen or more biochemical processes that underlie disease or 80 or 60 or, you know, a huge number of distinct genetic clusters. So that. Uh, If anybody cares or wants to plot a research career that will be both rewarding and frustrating, then um, try to to rethink schizophrenia as not a single disease and try to go into any research design or any clinical problem-solving approach with a very open mind that it's not all a dopamine problem and there could be lots of different causes and potentially lots of different medication approaches that might work in some subsets of people.
1: What you're really saying, it's a simple explanation.
0: <clears throat> what you're really saying.
1: <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, let me ask you this before we get on. Um, I want to keep the the, the uh, neurobiology component for a minute and then we'll switch into some some areas that a lot of people always wonder about and trying to distinguish um, from. So we'll get to those two and hopefully knock out some of those myths in a minute. But biomarkers, I know you you were working on biomarkers and I, I saw that in your website. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about biomarkers. Are there biomarkers in childhood? Um, What other biomarkers can we see over development stages or anything like that?
0: Yeah. So a biomarker is a thing that you can measure that is say like an, kind of like an objective lab test. When we diagnose schizophrenia, we look at very broad things like behavior or these very high level symptoms like hallucinations or unusual beliefs. But with as, as I said earlier, you can have a dozen or more causes of a hallucination and God knows how many causes of unusual beliefs. So that proves to be a big problem because then if you try to develop a, a treatment for schizophrenia, but schizophrenia may be composed of a whole bunch of different underlying causes, then you're you have to kind of look at physiological tests to try to help parse them out. So that's what a biomarker is. And in schizophrenia research, there's a lot, there's really a huge number of potential biomarkers that are investigated. The one thing that I was quite interested in, in my own biomarker research is fairly simple. And that is that a lot of people with schizophrenia don't have the expected customary skin flush response to niacin. Typically, if people take high doses of niacin at which they do or used to do when it was a treatment for for high high triglycerides or when you put niacin derivatives on the skin at high concentrations then those high high dose exposure to niacin cause blood vessels to open up blood rushes into the blood vessels and then you can see the change of color on the skin you can measure temperature changes as the hot blood moves to the cool to the cool um, pool of blood under the skin And it looks like a portion of people with schizophrenia don't do that very well. And for me, I found that extremely interesting because if you asked me, map out the biochemical cause of schizophrenia, I would not be able to do that. I could certainly map out a dopamine pathway, but there's a whole bunch of unknown. But if you ask me to map out the biochemical pathway for a normal niacin skin flush response, we, I can do that very well. We've known, we, we have great detailed knowledge about precisely what causes the blood vessels to open up, what chemicals are released. And so if it turns out that people with schizophrenia or at least a portion of them have an unusually blunted skin flush response, and if the skin flush response is very, very well known, that could lead to a discovery of a biochemical change that seems to be relevant to schizophrenia risk. Uh, I have colleagues elsewhere in the world, I don't know if they published this together or not, so I'm going to not give a whole lot of detail, but it it does seem that this biomarker or this aberrant skin flush response is present at the very earliest stages of psychosis. Uh, In my own research, I found that it was present in first degree relatives. So if you have a brother, sister, or a parent with schizophrenia, odds favor that you're going to have an unusual or an unusually attenuated skin flush response. And so the hope with biomarkers is there's a lot of possible applications. We might be able to detect somebody who is genetically or biochemically at risk way before they develop symptoms. And so that opens up, the first step is it opens up avenues for research to try to figure out ways to prevent the onset of symptoms of schizophrenia. And since these biomarkers are going to tap into different discrete elements of physiology, they offer the chance to personalize medication treatment. So we might be able to, uh, when I said earlier about the dopamine, high dopamine and normal dopamine schizophrenia, uh, if we can work out a good, easy, cheap biomarker for knowing who has high dopamine the high dopamine form and the normal dopamine form, we will know who's likely to benefit from traditional antipsychotic drugs and who should be prioritized for alternate treatments. Right now we have, we, we can put you in a PET scanning device and measure your dopamine synthesis, but not a, not a, not a lot of places in the world are equipped to do that. And there are technically some ways to measure dopamine in the blood that seem to reflect accurately, or at least reasonably accurately, dopamine production in the brain. But to do that, it's very, very complicated procedure with a lot of caveats. So it would take a high level of effort to do that reliably. But if we could come up with a simple, we'll say dopamine biomarker, then the really easy low hanging fruit application is you can then select people, parse them into the dopamine drugs and the not dopamine drugs. You'll also have an opportunity to Uh, Develop non-dopamine strategies for that non-dopamine illness. So there's a lot of potential applications for biomarkers. The biomarker work in psychiatry seems to have a, um, I joke about this a bit, but it, it seems to have a history which is reminiscent of bipolar disorder. So throughout the, from the 1950s to the present, there are these various epochs in which somebody discovers something. Like the first one that got a lot of press was the inability of people with depression to suppress the release of cortisol in response to a certain kind of steroid hormone called dexamethasone. And that got a lot of papers. It was as if, hey, now we can have a lab test for depression. So great enthusiasm happened. The manic phase, lots of money was spent. And then findings came out saying that people without depression have this apparent hormonal response. It's also present in PTSD. It's also present in some forms of anxiety. So then comes the recrimination phase and the regret that the the downside of the bipolar history of biomarkers and psychiatry. Um, And I'll just add parenthetically, we, my field continues to get this wrong because they had in the excitement phase, ah, we have a lab test for depression. In the recrimination phase, uh, but this test is present also in PTSD. It's also present in people with no obvious clinical diagnosis. What they and so therefore the biomarker is failed. What they should have said was, "Wow, we have a way to measure um, hypothalamic pituitary axis dysfunction." and now that we can measure who has aberrant hypoplamic pituitary axis functioning, let's find out how that manifests in the, in the life of people. Obvious, I mean, I would reconstructing that data, I would say, obviously it can translate into the clinical picture of melancholic depression, but it can translate into the picture of PTSD, or it can translate into the picture of some syndrome that doesn't have a diagnosis. So again and again, my field lost the opportunity to listen to nature and develop categories around it. And instead stuck with the category and insisted that biomarkers have to line up one-to-one with the DSM diagnosis and nature doesn't, doesn't know what we think about it actually. So, you know, expecting that a biomarker will, it's impossible in my view to find a biomarker that will accurately discern just one psychiatric diagnosis, because for that to happen, we would have had to gotten so lucky as to as that our initial diagnostic categories, which are just generated on mood or behavior, line up in a one-to-one fashion with some gene or biochemical process. And that's just not the way nature works ever.
1: It's funny. Human beings are always trying to box to, so things into simplicity to make it a yeah. one word answer. They want that panacea, but that's where I think a lot of the problems occur. That's why you have a lot of debates because people are arguing about the nuances of particular topics. And instead of like, hey, it's much more complicated than it is. I always tell my students the same thing: life is complicated; it's not, it's not simple. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Not
1: um, this is the last one, I guess, for the neurobiology a- aspect. I want to see what your take was on the, on the some of the studies that we read. That we they get taught in the textbooks about um, the prenatal environment and in, influenza and its correlation with schizophrenia. What's going on there?
0: Yeah, the a a. An old hypothesis, which looks every time it's tested valid, a way Mm -hmm. to understand a good portion of people with a, a good portion of schizophrenia is called the neurodevelopmental hypothesis. And essentially what, what the, what that hypothesis says is that some things happen during gestation, during intrauterine or early life development, the brain wires itself in ways which, allow it to function very well up until a certain point in life in late adolescence, early adulthood, when the brain undergoes another massive round of rewiring and also come online lots of life stresses and lots of hormones that weren't existing during childhood. And so in this neurodevelopmental theory, you have a, we'll say simplistically a wiring issue that wasn't or a brain development issue that didn't really become evident until the late adolescent, early adult, and other environmental changes come into play, at which point the wiring issue now becomes an issue for brain function. So the kinds to the question that you asked about influenza, some of the evidence that supports this neurodevelopmental hypothesis is that during epidemics of influenza or during periods of famine during around world war II, for example, uh, there are kids that are born that have a higher risk of schizophrenia later in life. So if you look at, I mean, I don't know exactly the dates, but I do know that in Denmark was one of the studies, one of the epidemiological data that supported this in Denmark, there was a, a famine due to, the war and if you look for um, kids that were born during that famine at starting when they get to be 16 or 25 they have significantly higher than average rates of schizophrenia similarly with influenza epidemics or other sorts of extreme stresses uh, we can model this in, in animals very well we can we can we can simulate famines we can stimulate stresses early development and then later in life, you can give them other sorts of interventions to recreate hormonal or life stresses. And then they wind up with behaviors as well as say brainwave functions that are reminiscent of what we see in people with schizophrenia. So you can, you can model this neurodevelopmental thing in rats and they, that's a fairly active area of research.
1: That was, that was a Dutch, Dutch hunger crisis, wasn't it? Thank yeah.
0: You. Yeah. Oh, it uh, probably was Dutch. Yes. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I was trying to remember. Uh, I think I heard yeah.
1: Sapolsky talk about that, and I was trying to think. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's amazing. I, I know because we see that. I'm really um, doing a lot of deep diving right now into uh, teratogenic effects, endocrine disruptors, and the prenatal environment because I think it's something that a lot of people just drop the ball on. They're not paying attention to it. At least in academia, they look yeah. at everything after the fact. Well, there's a lot of stuff we can do before the fact.
0: <laughs> so, exactly.
1: Um, let me, uh, actually, we're going to head over to some of the, we're going to bounce around a little bit, <laughs> so hope you don't mind. Oh, not um, a problem. These are some of the things that I know people wonder about out there, and at least in academia. I get a lot of these questions, as well as in the general population. Um, marijuana, this is going to be a touchy subject for some, but oh, I, yeah. think, <laughs> I think people are starting to get the idea that the THC levels are not the same anymore. Everybody that I've talked mm-hmm. to. Um, on the show about it says, "Hey, we're we're not testing with these high levels that are out in the streets. The THC levels are skyrocketing right. out there, um, but there is a correlation between marijuana use and psychosis, especially for adolescents. Am I wrong on that?
0: You're absolutely correct about that.
1: And how now? So, what is it? Is it causal? Is it a an enhancement?" <laughs>
0: Yeah, <laughs> this is where it well, gets let complicated. Me, yeah, it does get complicated. It also gets, I found it, it stirs a lot of passion and sometimes anger. So for those who might have certain points of view that could lead to anger, I want to say at the beginning, um Well, two things. One, I spent nearly probably 15 or 17 years in Oregon, very weed friendly. And whether I was living in Oregon, Illinois, everywhere I've gone, I have always signed petitions that will liberalize cannabis policy. I think that personally, prohibition was a bad policy that I've never supported prohibition of any kind. So I point this out now because what I'm going to say next is not charitable to the weed story um, but just because something you know because something should be legal doesn't necessarily mean that it's safe. You can look at guns or cars or whatever to, to justify that. Um, but I, I also want to point that out because a criticism that I get when I say things like TC absolutely can cause psychosis is that I'm just scaring people that I'm trying to advance a prohibition agenda, agenda. never really had that as a thing. I again am a psychiatrist. I see, actually having practiced in Oregon a long time, I see lots, see lots and saw lots of casualties of cannabis misinformation, the misinformation specifically being this is totally safe and natural. So I saw the people that were getting psychosis, panic attacks, and having lots and lots of problems. And since I started to, I started to point this out in public spaces, uh, like online, and then when I opened my mouth about what I saw as a clinician, I would get lots of emails or other contacts from people who themselves had experienced cannabis-induced psychosis or from the parents whose kids have experienced cannabis-induced psychosis, sometimes with extremely severe and seemingly lasting consequences. So it's a thing. So to come back to your question, we've known, well, first first funny story, this whole idea of medical marijuana is not at all a new idea. We actually had medical marijuana in the United States and in Europe from 1850 to about 1930. Um, If you go to Archives of old medical books, you'll find in old medical textbooks from 1880, 1910, that cannabis is listed right along with everything else as an ordinary medicine. I find these books to be interesting because these were written in an era when doctors were using cocaine to solve problems. I mean, it was a very non judgmental area when it came to drugs. And so you can't really say that when they were writing in these textbooks, Symptoms that look to a modern eye exactly like schizophrenia or psychosis, that these authors were trying to advance a prohibition agenda or a moralist agenda. I mean they were just they were just doctors telling other doctors through the textbooks what cannabis can be used for and what problems can arise so it was known to physicians in the first era. Of medical marijuana, that it can be very useful for many things, but it can also cause some people to have very serious problems in the area of cognition or perception. And in the modern era, there uh, there's been at least ten epidemiologic studies showing that cannabis use in early life is associated with a substantially higher risk of developing schizophrenia diagnosis later in life. If you look at if you average all of the 10 or so studies that have been done, you'll find that the the odds ratio or the degree of elevated risk is on, on average about fourfold elevated above baseline. Some of the studies have much higher odds ratios for developing schizophrenia. So epidemiologically, it's a thing. And people who are critics of this, or I call them optimists, will point out correctly that correlation, you can't prove causation from correlation, this is true. So those epidemiologic studies don't prove that cannabis causes um, schizophrenia. However, when it comes to um, doing studies that involve a bad outcome like lung cancer or schizophrenia, you can't just round up 10,000 people and have 5,000 of them smoke weed and 5,000 smoke placebo weed and say 10 years, we're gonna see who has schizophrenia. Uh, We didn't do that for cigarettes either, by the way, but it's, it's really clear that cigarettes cause cancer. How do we know that if we never did the clinical trial to give people cancer by smoking, we looked at it by using epidemiology and logic and animals. So to make a case for causation, in the case of cigarettes and cancer, you say there's a lot of epidemiological studies that show that smokers develop cancer at higher rates. You can also discern dose effects or exposure effects. So people that are heavy smokers are more likely to have cancer than light smokers. And we see that relationship between exposure, degree of exposure and schizophrenia risk in adulthood. So we have that dose response effect in the epidemiological data. We then say, is this biochemically plausible? Like in the case of cigarettes and cancer, are there chemicals in cigarette smoke that can turn on cancer genes and produce cancer? And yeah, similarly in the THC story, it's entirely biologically plausible. Uh, THC does several things that are relevant to schizophrenia or psychosis pathology. One, we know that Cannabis or THC causes certain areas of the brain to release high quantities of dopamine. We actually caught that in action in the human pet study in one case. Uh, We also know that like the, the thing that people, I don't think people fully understand most of the pharmacodynamics of cannabis that I read about say it has these THC and that attaches to a receptor in the brain that's designed to detect anandamide. And it sort of limits the discussion to the endocannabinoid system. But the next thing is the most important part of the story. THC binds to a receptor called CB1. CB1 is located on nerve terminals, nerve terminals, which release neurotransmitter. And the immediate effect of CB1 activation is to shut down the release of glutamate and GABA which are in terms of the number of synapses the brain uses, the number one and number two neurotransmitters in all of, of the brain. So take it just one step further, CHC, by virtue of binding the CB1 receptor shuts down the release of glutamate and GABA, which is saying like taking the foot off the accelerator in the case of GABA or taking the foot off the brake. I'm, I'm taking the foot off the accelerator in the case of glutamate or taking the foot off the brake in the case of GABA. Um, you could expect that there might be some things that happen (laughs) as a result of that. And some people might react, some people might react badly. The glutamate story is particularly interesting because as I said, way back in earlier in the discussion, schizophrenia can be parsed into dopamine psychosis, glutamate psychosis, inflammatory psychosis. Let's talk about glutamate psychosis, drugs that block the action of glutamate, very reliably cause psychosis, which is oftentimes indistinguishable for schizophrenia. Ketamine and PCP are classic glutamate receptor blockers Mm -hmm. that classically cause schizophrenia like uh, psychosis. And going back to THC inhibits the release of glutamate. So rather than blocking receptor, THC is working on the pre-receptor side, you know, blocking the signal, tamping it down. And um, another okay, I'm going to come back to this story in a second. Let's go back to these lines of evidence for causation when you can't do a clinical study. So you look for epidemiological association, exposure, and outcome relationships. You look for biochemical plausibility. Um, You also see... Can we model this in animals or can we maybe recreate it in a human laboratory? And when it comes to THC, there's dozens of studies in which they get healthy volunteers with no family history of mental illness, give them THC, and then have them do psychosis rating scales. And again and again and again, you find that a subset of volunteers experiences low-grade psychosis from low-grade doses of THC in clinical laboratories, you can't give high grade, you can't give high doses and high, high, you know, high, um, high risk, but as best we as close as we can come ethically, we can see reliably that giving THC causes psychosis. So that is the definition of causality. So those who say that it can't, please read those studies. Um, but In one of those studies, they had volunteers not only get THC, but they also had them go into a special kind of MRI scanner designed for a technique called magnetic resonance spectroscopy. So it's basically the same tube, but different software, which allows you to measure the concentration of a handful of brain chemicals amongst them, glutamate metabolites. So they got this cadre of volunteers, gave them the THC, found some of them didn't have psychosis and some of them did. And everybody went into the magnetic resonance spectroscopy scanner to have their glutamate metabolites measured. The ones, the volunteers that developed psychosis after the THC exposure had baseline lower levels of glutamate and had Changes in their brain that suggested greater inhibition of glutamate release, so we actually caught that one in the act as well. So when it comes to the question of can it cause psychosis, you know, yeah, it can. And the the big question is what exactly is the relationship between cannabis induced temporary psychosis and longer term permanent psychosis in the form of schizophrenia? Um, we have to go back again to some epidemiological studies to. Um, get some hints and several studies were done in Scandinavian countries, which have very good record systems. And they simply did a design where we're going to look at all the records and find individuals that got a substance induced psychosis diagnosis at one point in their life. And then we're going to look forward in time in their records and see what the risk is of developing schizophrenia or bipolar is. And it was really fascinating because different kinds of substances were associated with different likelihood of later diagnosis of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. The cannabis-induced psychosis and amphetamine-induced psychosis had the highest predictive value for later having a diagnosis of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. And depending upon the studies, those conversion rates were 30% or higher. Uh, in one of the studies where they looked at the diagnosis of either schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, it was more than 40% likelihood. So having an episode of cannabis-induced psychosis means that you have a 30% or higher risk of later being diagnosed with bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. That I explained that to, it's really hard as a clinician to to um, have these conversations with people who have had cannabis and psychosis because by and large, they like what cannabis does. So the, 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 the benefits that they've gotten up to that point seem to make it difficult to hear, you know, the following information. But I, I do point out to anybody who's open enough to listen that the fact that you dear patient have experienced psychosis after use of, insert drug name there, but cannabis, for example, um, that means probably that you have a cluster of genes and a neurologically wired, a neurological wiring system, which is sufficient for your brain to move on to psychosis type of functioning. Um, The fact that you had it means that you're capable of having it. And so that would explain to me why these findings from the Scandinavian epidemiological studies. So if you had an episode of cannabis-induced psychosis, you know, that group of people has the genetic and neurological capacity to develop psychosis. And so the the question unknown is what will move them from a single episode of cannabis-induced psychosis to a persisting psychosis. And we don't know the answers to that yet, but clearly all taking the totality of all this information it is um, something to be cautious about when people think about cannabis policy or think about cannabis regulation. And I think to your point earlier, what other guests may have been saying is that for most of human history, cannabis was a plant that grows in nature and has 3%, 4%, 5% THC content by weight. Uh, What if you look at state laws, either recreational states or medical marijuana states, the legal definition of cannabis is makes no mention of content or form. So medical marijuana in many states might mean 90% THC. oils or waxes yeah it's whatever there's a variety. again it has no legal definition other than other every state that i've read i've read all the definitions they basically say anything that comes from the plant or any derivative of anything that comes from the plant in any form so what what is called what what can be legally called marijuana or cannabis depending upon the state it, it oftentimes bears no resemblance whatsoever to anything ever found in nature, both in form or concentration. And in many, in, in a, every, every state that whose laws I've read, um, then it essentially opens up what, what, what will, it would be more accurate to call this THC laws or pharmaceutical THC laws uh, because what is allowed under medical marijuana um, is essentially anything at any concentration in any form.
1: That's what makes it complicated. There's so many variations of it. Hashish was one of the the highest Mm -hmm. ones I've read, but then you also have polysubstance use. I mean, it gets complicated really fast. Folks, again, if you want to learn more about Dr. Messamore, you go to learnaboutpsychosis.com, go to learnaboutpsychosis.com. All right, so we got out of the minefield. We've hit on to the other topics now (laughs) for a second here. Um, All right, so now I head over to... um, I want to get of over the social area for a second, because it's only one of the few areas. But there's that theory that went around for a while. I'm not sure what you think of it. The highly expressed emotion environment as a contributing factor to schizophrenia. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts on that?
0: I remember reading about that in throughout college and graduate school um (laughs) my best understanding of what high expressed emotion environments are are stressful environments where people are you're like more likely to experience criticism or stress in the way that things are handled or issues are discussed and that is uh, stress is a risk factor for everything uh we're Human beings are designed to respond to stress. We have a pretty good way of doing it. Uh, You know, we experience stress, we analyze the stress, we react to the stress. And in reacting to the stress, we're supposed to either eliminate it, modify it, figure out a way to live with it and be done with it. So we have stress response is unpleasant because the body's logic says that Things that require attention are going to be unpleasant. It's a way of focusing attention on a thing that needs changed. So in healthy stress responses, our attention is drawn to a problem that poses some kind of threat, and then we either negate it, modify it, um, or go away from it. If you're living in a family or have a social network that is a constant source of stress that you're not able to run away from or modify or change, then that's an unhealthy thing that you can't escape from. So you have a sort of chronic level of stress. And then that eventually we can say with some certainty based upon human biochemical studies and tons of animal studies that low grade or high grade constant level of stress will change um, your body's stress management system. I, I like to think of it as that there being a thermostat in the brain that measures stress level. Um, the stress, we'll say the stress temperature simplistically is cortisol and the parts of your brain, hippocampus and hypothalamus have detectors for, for cortisol level in them. And when they detect high levels, they're supposed to shut the system down. But if you live in an environment social situation or whatever that is constantly exposing you to stress, then the brain just adapts and it says, okay, if this was a thermostat, um, 80 degrees normal. So we're not going to turn down the heat when it gets to this temperature, because that's just where we run. So, uh, and, and data from humans and animals both support this idea that the stress set point in the brain rises and that produces lots and lots of downstream changes in other neurochemical systems or other body systems, which seem to associate with higher likelihood of almost any psychiatric diagnosis in a number of medical conditions.
1: Perfect. I guess my last two questions, possibly, (laughs) when you see in the news, a lot of times the tragedies of these mass shootings, Um, a lot of times I can tell something is happening with that individual uh, mm-hmm. by the symptomologies that they've talked about. They keep certain things out of the articles sometimes. Sometimes they put them in. I've seen them edited out. <laughs> but usually I'll say, okay, I'm, I'm thinking in the top of my head, this is probably a psychotic episode by, the, by their behavior because they're very unusual things that are usually done. Um, not all the time, but a lot of times I'm pretty accurate. And sometimes we see marijuana was, was part of that equation. Um, they usually leave that out for whatever reason. Um, but I guess my question to you is this. We, When we see some of these tragedies, some of these horrific things, you know, there was an individual the other day, I think they beheaded somebody. Again, that usually points me into the direction, possibly that could be something like that. Um, is a person, there's obviously violence associated with psychotic episodes, but the question really becomes how prevalent is it? And is it a person who's already violent or aggressive uh, has aggressive tendencies to begin with then it gets exacerbated kind of like a steroid issue or does it just change anybody into that possible state it could i, I guess i'm trying to get some kind of handle on violence or aggression and sky psychosis
0: yeah most people are most people with psychosis or with schizophrenia are far more likely to be the victim of violence than to be a perpetrator of violence. The the huge overwhelming majority of people with psychosis or schizophrenia are not violent people. If you look at the, if you look at the data as they can be found, you will see that with say schizophrenia, for example, and psychosis would follow from that, that across all comers there is a statistically significantly higher rate of violent behavior compared to somebody without that diagnosis but it's if it's just schizophrenia, then the elevation of risk is like around no more than twofold higher than baseline and baseline risk for violent behavior is very, very low across the board. When you, however, combine psychosis or schizophrenia with substance use or substance abuse or intoxication, then you wind up with significantly higher rates of violence across the board. It can be as high as 16, high, 16 fold higher than baseline. And most of the reports and uh, most, most episodes of really horrific violence involve a combination. Well, if psychosis is involved, it usually is also paired with a substance use issue. And um, so that's is the the combination of substance use and psychosis is a is a kind of bad combination. Unfortunately, it is relatively common for people with substance with psychosis or substance use for people with psychosis or schizophrenia to have co-occurring substance use issues. Uh, Again, most people with co-occurring psychosis and substance use are not violent people, um, but if violence is going to happen that is the factor that can increase their odds.
1: I've been doing a lot of research lately on microbiome (laughs) and it's been kind of fascinating. This is like a growing Mm -hmm. new field. And I know when it's growing a lot of times, everything gets slapped with it. Um, There are some pretty decent arguments, a lot of correlation arguments. Are you seeing anything microbiome at all in, in schizophrenia or psychosis?
0: I have not, I mean, I I read a lot of medical reports and literature. Mm -hmm. Um, I have not dedicated any time specifically to looking at microbiome stuff on psychosis or schizophrenia in my, you know, in my, I do tend to have um, a bit of an ADHD mind. So I'll, if I go to PubMed or Google Scholar, I'll see all these other links. So I will go down these rabbit holes. I haven't seen a whole lot in all the reading that I've done. On microbiome issues for schizophrenia or psychosis yet, but uh, yeah, I started seeing papers about microbiome research that were just astoundingly fascinating, mm-hmm. starting in like 2007 or so. The things like things like changing the microbi- changing the gut bacterial flora in animals given experimentally induced heart attack or stroke, you'll find that, you know, gut flora composition changes the outcome. It can promote, it can recover your survival. So I think that it's going to, it, it's a very, very, very powerful system. And we're at the, it seems to me we're at the absolute beginning of, um, of exploring this area. I can't even, it, it seems quite difficult to say that we're at a point where we can effectively intervene. Um, and to, to your point as well, with things that are powerful, new, and in the case of things like gut bacteria, where you can make supplements of all kinds, then you wind up with a lot of snake oil salesmen and hucksters and people trying to make a quick buck. And I, I really, it makes me sad that we have an environment that can happen because when a space is invaded by hucksters and quick bucks, snake oil salesmen, then it really, it it tends to tarnish the reputation of that. And it drives serious scientists to go look for other things. So nonetheless, it is a very powerful system. And I, you know, I, 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 I wonder a lot about what the possibilities will be for being able to harness that for medical uses in general, particularly when it comes to psychiatric conditions.
1: I guess my last question is a two-part question. It reminded me, I don't know if they're brain structures uh, or what you know about this particular phenomenon. It's always interested me. The Beautiful Mind showed it, the movie, Um, but I see a lot of people with psychosis over the years and a lot of people's obviously subjective, but that have Nazi type delusions. Um, And I also see uh, devil type delusions. The devil told me to do it. We saw Son of Sam from many years ago. He was one anecdote, but there seems to be some kind of themes that run with a type of psychosis for certain individuals. I know with reading my background's criminal psych, so I'm usually looking at the criminal mind type of stuff. And I know some of the, the violent crimes that I saw last year, some of the individuals that had psychotic episodes, several of them had said that it was either. The devil told me to do it. I think there was an individual who killed both of his kids because the devil said, you know, you got to do this. And then another individual, something about the Nazis. Obviously, I'm assuming prior to the Nazis, when they had psychosis episodes, it wasn't the Nazis. I don't know who it was back then. Maybe it was all religious based. Anything going on there that you know about?
0: Yeah. Well, to the times so like before the Nazi era, if you look, if you look to the writings of Emil Kreppelin, who was a mm-hmm. We'll say the father of the schizophrenia diagnosis, Kreppelin was a German psychiatrist or a German, uh, I don't know if they had, if they called them psychiatrists back in those days, but he was a German physician who worked in the special hospitals that were being built in the 1800s for people with mental illness. And Kreppelin's life work was to try to categorize different kinds of illnesses, if you look at Kreplin's writing, he'll describe patients that we would recognize a day as having psychosis. And they're drawing out, you know, these machines that are creating these, these disturbing ideas. So rather than having delusions of Nazis, they had delusions that involved machinery. This was in the height of the industrial revolution, so everything was about machines. So you know, you took a common a, a common societal concept and to go back to what i said at the beginning the part of the brain that does the thinking that has to make sense of everything is trying really hard to make sense out of perceptions that part of the brain that, that don't normally go together so if and i said i said earlier in this in this broadcast on my phone right now to my left is a telephone and to my right is a window and there's a tree so if i get this misperception of significance that my phone is really like almost trying to tell me something and that tree out there seems unusually alive or unusually brown or really super strong, Like, could these things be connected? So there's a compelling desire to solve a giant riddle about why is it this stuff like this? What's the message for me? And so if that's the problem that thinking brain tries to solve, then thinking brain uses whatever explanations are in line with the Explanations that culture might provide, or with underlying temperament might suggest. So, if I should be perhaps a more suspicious person, and suspicion, by the way, is quite an adaptive response. If I don't, if I'm facing a situation that I don't know what what means what. Assuming the worst is actually a good position to start from because I might it will probably pr- promote my higher level of safety. So I can make I can make I can make guesses that these are sinister. These are somehow connected by backstream wires or or malicious energy. And from malicious energy, what else could do malicious energy? Well, you know, devils can, Nazis could, uh, whatever. So I, I get um, you know I sort of build on this mm-hmm. belief. And to come back to the tension of having these misperceived significances, if my phone on the left and the tree on the right are really trying to tell me something, or I get the sense that there's some message there, I have tension. If I develop this idea that they are connected by malicious energy... It's not nice. No, that's happening. But at least I've answered this question, and it sort of reduces my tension a bit. A bit, and anytime I get a new misperception, or anytime I see a situation which seems to be a little confusing, I can then fit this into this new belief about malicious energy behind things, um, and that's how delusions get reinforced. Because if you have an expect, if you don't have a belief that works to explain some things, then We're going to apply that kind of cognitive bias to a lot of things, and a lot of it might fit, particularly if it's something as nebulous as malignant energy. You can also have, if you have um, a different temperament or a different tapping into a different kind of cultural system belief, I can go again with phone and tree, and I can imagine I have, you know, they're connected by... Bright spiritual energy, or I've been given a gift of insight to see the deeper meaning of things, and that could make me very excited. If I should be a religious person, or at least tap into sort of religious mythology in my culture, then I might believe that I'm getting, you know, I'm chosen by God for something, and from that, maybe, uh, maybe I'm going to be a second coming of some some prophet, and I can go from there. Once again, I have the expecta- I have now a, a framework for viewing the world that makes sense of things that needed to be sense made. And from there, new uh, misperceptions of significance can be incorporated into that belief, and then I can start to see you know, things that are ordinary in new lines. So that's how these belief systems evolve, and that's why they tend to follow um, a combination of personality factors and temperament as well as cultural uh, systems that can explain stuff. So I see in my work, I see a lot of stuff with computers and chips because these are, I mean, these are very powerful tools and they can do a lot of stuff that behind the scenes. So it, it's a great, it's a great belief system to explain a lot of stuff. Again, for the phone, in the tree, wireless connections are abounding and I'm sitting in a uh-huh. space with a lot of Wi-Fi. So that's a, it's a great system to explain stuff, but all, all, all of these, many of these unusual beliefs that are called delusions um, are basically The way that thinking brain has developed our explanations that thinking brain has come up with to explain the combination of misperceived sensation, hallucination, and misperceived significance.
1: I could keep you here all day, but unfortunately, (laughs) I have to wrap this up. I think that caused about another 10 questions to pop in my head. Folks, again, if you want to learn more, go to learnaboutpsychosis.com. Learnaboutpsychosis.com. It's Dr. Eric Messamore, M-E-S-S-A-M-O-R-E. Dr. Massamore, I can't thank you enough for being here with us today.
0: Well, oh, thank you again for inviting me. It's great to talk with you. And um I hope your listeners have found something useful. And again, to go to learnaboutpsychosis.com. You'll find my contact information. I have I, I'm going to be giving a uh leading a continuing medication, a continuing medical education seminar for clinicians. That'll be September 17th. So you can sign up for there or you know, just get in contact with me. It's contact with me and send me questions. Happy to try to engage with as many people as I have time for.
1: Awesome stuff. I think I definitely learned something. I'm sure they will. Super. I thank you again. Folks, again, man, you know what to do share, subscribe, hit that like button. Go check out learnaboutpsychosis.com